So, um, I, the two words that are in my mind here are reconciliation and mission. We've been talking about reconciliation and mission. And when it comes to our, our relationship with the various streams of the church, uh, we are, we're hearing the themes of uh, reconciliation, which I believe in, of course. But I've come at this through mission. And if you can put reconciliation and mission together, they're not contrary, but they can sometimes sound very different emphases and notes. And uh, to the extent that I know some people are so into uh, reconciliation, I sometimes suspect that they've dropped kind of the very clear mission uh, that's demanded. Now, uh, I am a good evangelical, so I came out, how can people be born again? How can people meet Jesus? That's my issue. That, that's what's driven me into looking into this whole evangelical Catholic uh, relationship. And um, when I was in, I was in YWAM for 17 years, and eight years of that... Uh, I spent in London as a street preacher, so uh, I want to see the mission side. I want to see that clear, uh, uh, ye must be born again, and don't forget to say it in King James, please. And, uh, but you see that in John 17, you see that same mix, you know, where it says, Jesus, we all know his high, priest, high priestly prayer, uh, that they may be one. What he's praying is he's looking down over the, the valleys and the vistas of time, and it's one of the few prayers, I, I, it may be the only prayer where he specifically prays not for uh, immediate circumstances, but for you and I. I pray, Father, not just for these, but for those. He's looking down at us. And what does he pray? He prays for oneness. At the same time, with that great emphasis, it's clearly on the heart of God and his Son as he's here, the revelation of what the Father's heart is, that emphasis on oneness, why? So that the world may know. And you see this mix of reconciliation and mission all together. Very clear. And so they're not to be separated. But if I have to say, uh, what's my emphasis? It's been coming at it. How can we do effective mission uh, amongst uh, culturally uh, Catholic people? How, what does it mean as evangelicals to do effective mission? To see our message come across. And I'm going to be in this talk, I'll be mixing observations. I'm going to tell a bunch of stories, that's what I'm going to do. It's going to be mainly people I've met, incidences that I've stumbled into in, in my research. And um, I'm thinking of a little bit like Acts 15, where what happened when you see the, 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 the church gets together at Acts 15, they tell the story of what God's doing, and then they reflect on it biblically, and then they ask questions. And I'm going to be having some scripture telling some stories of what God's doing, and then some questions both about what he's doing and then about maybe beginning to look at some questions about who we are as evangelicals because we have strengths and we have weaknesses. Uh, I won't say too much about our weaknesses um, because, frankly, I'm not sure I know them clearly enough. When you, when you say to a person, what's your accent, uh, you know, unless they've traveled, they say, I don't have an accent. Everybody else has an accent. You don't recognize your own accent. You know, you're, you're the norm, and everybody else adds these funny sounds to it. Um, and it's like that was with us as evangelicals. I think it's, in fact, very difficult for us to know our own weaknesses because we're so comfortable in them. And that is part of why we need this widening out to connect with other streams in the body of Christ, the non-evangelicals or the non-self-declared evangelicals. Uh, because I think only then are we going to really see our weaknesses. So I'll have some maybe hints, if I have time, of suspected weaknesses, but I won't say too much about that. 
Um, I got involved in this. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. I went to Roman Catholic boarding schools. I was uh, uh, confirmed. I took St. Jude because he was the, uh, the saint of impossible cases, and I thought he would be good to have on my side. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and maybe after meeting some of you, I know I really need St. Jude. But the, uh, so I, 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 when I was 16, though, uh, I was in a... Uh, uh, a Benedictine-run uh, Catholic boarding school. Uh, they're all Hungarians. And um, that's when I began to drift from the Catholic Church. One day my brother said to me, why are you going to church? And I thought, I don't really know why. And I began to drift from the church. Typical story with many, many Catholics. And the only difference with me is, is that eventually as I got involved in uh, you know, all the things from the 60s, uh, I met the Lord when I was in India. And uh, so I feel like, as I was, we're here, our speakers today, a Catholic speaker, an Indian speaker, I sort of have, uh, I'm getting very stretched out and it's getting distinctly uncomfortable because I'm, I have a foot in, out of both camps. I was born in the, in, in the Catholic camp and born again in the Indian one. Uh, and, but like many a person who's come out of that background, I was very prejudiced against the Catholic Church. I don't know how it picked it up, but it's not somebody anybody tells you, but you, we gradually pick it up as, as evangelicals. You understand that was wrong, and this is right. And so I went on quite happily for years that way. And uh, then I met uh, a man called Bruce Cluett, uh, and I began hearing some very strange stories about what God was doing in Catholic uh, uh, communities. I said, really? Uh, I was in an outreach in Italy, and I heard a Catholic preacher, and I thought, he's actually preaching from the Bible. And he's a priest. And he's talking about healing, and he's praying for people and seeing healing in the name of Jesus. And uh, it sounds like he actually believes this stuff, you know. And I began, like many of us, to discover God is doing something that surprised me as as an ex-Catholic. And so gradually, I remember uh, in those days in England, uh, uh, Michael Harper founded the the Fountain Trust. And I remember walking in before I discovered this, and here was a meeting, a a charismatic uh, meeting, and here was about 13 nuns and priests, and the priests, you know, with the robes with all the buttons. How long does it take you to button all those up? (laughs) But uh, there's a new meaning to being buttoned up. But anyway, um, so... I thought, what in the world are they doing here? What do they know, you see? And so I began to discover that actually uh, they, they knew quite a lot, that God was doing something beyond me. Time went on, anyway. Uh, and as I was, uh, had left Interdev with this partnership, uh, I was thinking, God, what should I do? I knew that I should be doing some sort of PhD study, and I was kind of looking at different areas. And um, I began to inquire what was going on in Austria. I, uh, I'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, when the, oh, I was there, I met a man called David Bjork, an excellent book he's written called Unfamiliar Paths, published by uh, Kerry Press in Pasadena. It tells the story of David Bjork, uh, who went to France in the 70s uh, to plant churches and eventually changed his whole ministry. So this is his last you know, 25 years. He's worked totally within a Catholic context uh, in a Catholic parish, and in Catholic, three different Catholic parishes. As an evangelical, as a self-declared evangelical, he's known to be an evangelical, uh, and because of his faithfulness, has developed wonderful friendships with bishops and has uh, opened doors for him. But I met David in Vienna, and, I, and we began to talk. And this is what began my Ph.D. process. 
Um, he said, you know, Paul, I, I meet increasingly missionaries, especially American missionaries, because there's a lot of us dotted around, you know, uh, that uh, are increasingly working in the way I am, much more cooperatively with and within the Catholic Church. But the problem is that in some cases they can't tell their supporters at home, and in a few cases they can't even tell their leaders in their mission. And what I feel needs to happen is that they need to have permission to do what God has called them to do. That is the sentence that rang in my head. Permission to do what God has called them to do. And I thought maybe I can make one small contribution toward that uh, by this PhD. And the question before us is an evangelical community. I'll talk to us as evangelicals uh, uh, here. I know some of you are in, in the Catholic Church, but you're evangelicals. Um, are we resisting actually God, what, what God is wanting to do by our generally anti-Catholic stance? Is there a new wave of the Spirit of God that, uh, that we're only so slow in catching on to that we're actually resisting what God is doing? Secondly, my question is, is there a way to more effectively do mission? We're evangelicals. We want to do effective mission. What does that look like in Catholic uh, lands? And how can we do it without betraying our culture and our heritage? How can we do it without betraying our culture and our heritage? You see, evangelicalism is a movement raised up by God. And we mustn't betray the treasures and the riches that God has put into evangelicalism. We heard about John Wesley. Uh, uh, the call to be born again. You could say the evangelicalism is the Reformation set on fire, focused toward conversion. I, people, some people call evangelicals, uh, define evangelicalism or characterize it as it's, it's wrapped up in convertive piety. It's a piety that's all wrapped up around conversion. It's a biblicistic one. You know, the Bible. The Bible's at the center of our, 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 um, our life. And we mustn't lose that because that's a gift of God. And that's actually one of the pri two primary gifts that convertive mentality and the emphasis and the beliefs around that and the whole uh, Bible-based um, uh, piety, those are actually two of our greatest gifts toward the Catholic Church. And if somebody like David Bjork in France, that's what he's doing. Those two things, right there, you know, for 30 years. And if we, if we lose that, we lose our salt, we lose what it is God has raised up to do, us up to do, in fact. So I, to me, it's not a question of, okay, we need to be less evangelical, but we need to be truly evangelical, wisely evangelical, graciously evangelical, and know how to introduce those treasures into other places. Um, I was trying to explain, I was at a conference uh, with charismatic uh, Catholics uh, six weeks ago in, in the Czech Republic in Sech. There was 420 uh, young charismatic Catholics, um, uh, all of them under 25 years of age, uh, enthusiastically praising God. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel insulted. I say this is a compliment. You couldn't tell they were Catholic in, in the... Uh, in the, uh, <laughs> you, I, you can see my background. I'm coming at it from that way. You know, I mean, I didn't go to the masses so that you could very much tell they were Catholic because they would have daily mass, which was very important to them. Uh, but during the sessions, you know, uh, you know, I always laugh when I see these little nuns, you know, and uh, with their bat things and they're jumping and praising the Lord, you know. <laughs> Franciscan brothers, you know. 
the tassels going up and down, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know, they love Jesus and um, they want to tell the world about it. And so I was there and I was with these uh, Eastern Europeans and, and so I said, well, you know, evangelicals and they, they don't have, that's a, you know, it's an Anglos, Anglo-Saxon word, evangelicals. And in German, in the 60s, they actually adopted it. They couldn't, they didn't have a word. So the Germans, evangelical. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's an Amer- that's a Anglo- Anglo-Saxon word that's coming to the German language. But it's not coming to the Middle Europe, so they didn't, well, what are you saying, evangelicals? And I was trying to, you know, the theology and the kind of, what is it? I said, I know, I said, I said, this is what an evangelical is. You know those people, do you meet those people with the Bible? And they go, the Bible says, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. Now we know who you're talking about. You see, that's who we are. I mean, that's part of who we are. It's at the center. So we mustn't lose that. Uh, just a little, uh, we, we were talking about tradition the other day, and just because we have our traditions, of course. You know, I mean, that's, why is it that we're characterized? Because that's our tradition. You know, we treasure certain practices and certain beliefs. We prioritize those, highlight those, emphasize those, disregard others. That marks us. It's not a bad tradition, but it is a tradition. We, we take certain things out of the Word of God and we prioritize those. And I love what... Um, uh, an ex-Lutheran uh, uh, minister and theologian who became Orthodox at the end of his life, Yaroslav Pelikan said, uh, Pelikan said uh, he said, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, whereas tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, whereas tradition is the living faith of the dead. And then, uh, if, uh, uh, just a G.K. Chesterton, I, can't, I have to, I always love G.K. Chesterton. Um, and I love what he said. He says, tradition uh, refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy, and oligarchy is the ruler of the wealthy, uh, the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who happen to be merely, who merely happen to be walking about alive. <laughs> All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. <laughs> you have to love G.K. Chesterton. The, um, in, I was telling you about what happened in Austria. Is that, um, I think it was around 1996, there was a visa crisis. All these missionaries, especially American missionaries, were beginning to be kicked out of the country. Uh, the Catholic Church is, kind of, is always in the background, you know, in, in, in Austria you'll notice, you know, you'll see the Cardinal uh, on the, 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 the daily news, some big event. So the Catholic Church has a, a real background uh, because of the history and it's part of it. And so what happened was there was a man in the ministry, uh, the foreign ministry, who was uh, coming down on evangelicals. And the cardinal took a surprising stand to a lot of evangelicals. He said, I would like to help you. And um, so he sent one of his men, Johannes Fichtenbauer, and he went to the ministerium and, and they had a meeting. And the man said, don't worry, we're taking care of these evangelicals. We're, you know. And he says, no, no, the cardinal doesn't want you to get rid of them. The cardinal doesn't want us to throw out the, the evangelicals? No. So that began to turn the whole situation. Now, Stuart McAllister who was the head of the European Evangelical Alliance, saw an opportunity here. And so he got together the evangelicals, because we're like squabbling cats always, you know. Uh, you, know the, you know the expression, herding cats? 
That's evangelicals, you know. We're always infighting, you know. It's not just with Catholics, it's with one another. He saw an opportunity to bring evangelicals together in a round table. And he said, what I think we need to do here, he said, I will help you on this visa crisis if you will come together so we can work on this together. So the evangelicals and charismatics began to come together, like always, because we were forced to. Oh, we've got to stay in the country, so I guess, you know, I guess we better do something together, you know. But when they saw the cardinal was actually helping them, not just words, but he actually helped them to do their ministry, that spoke volumes to them. And out of that began this round table. And what the round table's done uh, is every year, twice a year, three days at a time, they get together. Now there's 50 leaders in this. And they pray for one another. They discuss projects. There's been several wonderful projects that have come out of it. They've had two big meetings in St. Stephen's Cathedral. The first time that uh, you know, officially Protestants were sponsored to come into the cathedral where in the Reformation uh, outside uh, there had been martyrs and the Protestants had been killed. There were several Lutherans, but the vast majority of hundreds that were, were, were killed. Uh, were the Anabaptist types. And so they had a recon- some reconciliation meetings. The second time, uh, the uh, Cardinal uh, Schoenborn actually apologized uh, for the wrongs that were done. And then they had a big Jesus fest, with thousands of, uh, again, evangelicals, charismatics, Catholics, all coming together. And these are the type of things that the roundtable was able to do. But as I looked at uh, the roundtable, I began to see uh, this kind of pattern, it's only possible when um, uh, evangelicals and Catholics, uh, or when evangelicals are willing to step beyond their boundaries and bring the gifts that they have in love and grace and humility to other Catholics. It, it doesn't happen. It has to happen the other way, of course. Catholics have to be open, but I'm not talking to Catholics now. I'm talking to my community, the evangelical community. So I'm looking at what is our uh, mindset and what is our, our responsibility to be. And when I look at Johannes Fichtenbauer, this is a pattern I began to see, um, who is the deacon under Yo- uh, Cardinal Schoenborn, who was plucked out uh, by Cardinal Schoenborn to be his representative to the, uh, non, to the evangelical community, his personal representative. And Johannes Fichtenbauer was one of these people who was led to Christ by evangelicals. Um, and for a year, when he was 16, 17, he was with, it was, it a, was it a brethren community? I can't remember, Father Peter, exactly which one it was, but it was something like a brethren. It was a free church, definitely. And the, to their surprise, he said, after a year, he said, you know, I feel God is leading me back into the Catholic Church. They weren't very happy about it, but he wasn't leaving his conversion. He was bringing that. And in fact, for the first few years, he had a very difficult time in the Catholic Church. Not because of the Catholics to him, but he with the Catholics, because they didn't express themselves like evangelicals. He thought, oh, they're very cold. They don't seem to have this experience. Um, but it's only because of that evangelical flavor that was added to his, his life and because of that conversion experience, he brought that back in. And that's what's made, along with Cardinal Schoenborn's uh, open heart toward evangelicals, has made this possible. But when you said, look at Cardinal Schoenborn, um, he was very impressed by meeting uh, evangelicals when he was at the University of Fribourg as a, as a professor of uh, theology there. And the head of the German-speaking part of YWAM uh, was one of his students. And he told me personally, he said, you know, every time I came out of Cardinal Schoenborn's Christology class, he said, I was, I was always very, very blessed. But it was a mutual thing because 
Uh, Walter Dürer, the German-speaking head of YWAM at that time, when he was at the University of Fribourg, wrote a paper. He was doing a study on a German theologian, a Swiss theologian. And the Cardinal Schönborn, who was then not the Cardinal, he wasn't, wasn't even a bishop, but it was Professor Schönborn, was very impressed with this. And he said, can I send this to some people in Rome? And he says, yes, that would be very good. He sent it to some people in Rome. The, the uh, theologian in Rome was very impressed and said, I'd like to gather a little group here and I would like to correspond. And, and, and they began a correspondence for about two years with some Swiss theologians. Well, that theologian in Rome was, of course, Ratzinger. So you just, you know, these, these roots, these things that God is doing, you know, behind the scenes. And so here's Johannes. And then I'd begin to discover other Catholics that were like this. I was with a group in Strasbourg in France, small group, evangelical, one Catholic and one uh, um, uh, pastor. And when I talked to uh, the, uh, the French uh, Catholic, who was named uh, Professor Lavalois, I think it was. He was the head of the Department of Sociology in the Archdiocese. He said the same thing to me. He says, I was led to the Lord uh, by evangelicals. Now, here's people that, are, that, have, that have this personal relationship with Jesus, which I would suggest is the thing that we evangelicals are most concerned with. Are we, more, are we most concerned with they be, you know, denomination X? Most of us are not. We are wanting people to know Jesus personally. My objection and my prejudice against the Catholic Church was that you can't know Jesus. They don't know Jesus personally. It's just form. It's all this stuff. It's incense, you know. And, uh, uh, but if it's possible that people can really know Jesus there and flourish in their spiritual life, Maybe there's a different way that we should think about is what is our mission and responsibility to the Catholic world. And I began to see this pattern. Uh, and it's not just with the Catholics, of course. There's another uh, man who's more friendly than many Orthodox are, who are much more prickly, as you'll know. If you've met uh, any Orthodox, uh, uh, tend to be much more prickly than the Catholics. And there's a leading Orthodox thinker in the United States called Bradley Nassif. You read his book. Once again, there's they say, I was led to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by, by evangelicals in college. Now, he stayed an Orthodox, but he, he has this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what is his burden? He says, what? He says, our, our primary need in the Orthodox Church in the United States is to lead people to being reconverted to Jesus Christ. Because of that evangelical flavor. Now, if you can get that evangelical message inside of an institution that themselves say, yeah, we haven't traditionally thought of it that way, but you know, you're right. You know, we're lacking something and you can bring something to us. I would suggest that uh, has a, 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 should have uh, a huge weight upon the sort of strategies that we consider as evangelicals when we look at what is our mission in the Catholic world. It doesn't mean... Let me just lay my cards on the table. Um, I, I don't believe that we should stop independent church planning. I believe that people are called to all sorts of different things. So I, I'm, very, I'm very happy with independent church planning. But I believe we've been blinkered. I, I believe that we can do it in a more gracious way when we're doing it. And I believe there's others who are not called to plant churches, but should be doing some sort of more cooperative mission with and within uh, Catholic institutions. That's, that's where I'm going with all this, just to let you know. Um, 
I remember another Austrian I, I, I've met several times now over the past two years called Georg Meyer Melnhoff. Meyer Melnhoffs are a very big family uh, in, in Austria, a very old uh, Catholic family. And Georg told me a story. It's one of these wonderful mixed stories. He met the Lord Jesus in Medjugorje. Now, I don't know, do most of you know what Medjugorje is? Medjugorje is a Marian shrine where there's lots of people go, the parents of uh, Mary, miracles there. It's a Marian shrine. I want to say that again, okay? So you get the picture. Now, um, Georg, a typical Catholic, you know, he made a bargain with God. He had some problems and he said, God, if, you know, you'll, you'll help me here, I'll, I'll take 50 people to, to Medjugorje. And God answered his prayer and he went, darn, now I have to do, uh, you know, I've got to do something. So he took this busload there. He didn't know Jesus personally, but he had been educated as a Catholic all his life. He says this himself. He went there and there was a charismatic Catholic uh, on board, you know. He never met one of these people. Uh, Georg was around 17 at the time. He went to Medjugorje, and at one of the meetings there, this Catholic charismatic said, do any of you know Jesus personally? That hit him like a ton of bricks. He said, I know all about the church. I know all about our doctrine. But do I know Jesus personally? Nobody's ever asked me that before. And then and there... He, he bowed his head before God, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He wept, and he wept, and he was born again. Georg came back and started a movement of other university students, and they, it was around the rosary. By the way, do you know that the rosary is only optional? In, you're, you're not required to say the rosary as a Catholic. Uh, but uh, he was... Uh, uh, he was saying the rosary, they were praying, they were seeking God every month, they would go down there. Finally, things went on, and they said, you know, we need, uh, and the group was growing, and, and people were meeting Jesus, and uh, uh, they were studying, you know, and they are trying to grow in their faith, but they came to a certain place after, I think it was two years, and they felt they hit a ceiling, and they didn't know what to do. They felt, we need to go further. And they went to, by then, uh, uh, Professor Schoenborn had come to, uh, as, and he was the Bishop of Vienna, and he went to uh, Bishop Schoenborn, and he said, what should we do? We're struggling. We, we've got to a certain point. And Bishop Schoenborn, he says, well, I, I think I have something for you. I've got an answer for you, but it's slightly unusual. You have to be willing to do this. He said, why? He said, because the man I'm going to suggest to you to go to for your help is not a Catholic. So in other words, this is a city of almost a million people, lots of priests, lots of uh, bishops, lots of good people. Bishop Schoenborn doesn't pick out any of those Catholics. And he says, who you need to go to is Bruce Kluet, who was the youth of the mission leader in Austria. And he says, I, and, you know, uh, Georg, are you sure? He's your man, go to Bruce Kluet. You know, that's when he can turn on your kind of Bishop Bishopleetly, Bishop whatever the adjectival form of bishop is, of authority. Go to Bruce Kluet. And so, so Georg went to, and for the next two years they did training. Uh, and their whole, they took all their leadership through this. And, and Georg said, my mind was completely widened to understand the body of Christ much more widely. Uh, and uh, they went through all the YWAM teachings. And uh, so... so that went into their movement. 
And they, they do things like they do evangelism, uh, they, they invite down out of Norway, there's a Jesus rock group, they bring them down, they do, they do street evangelism, people come up to them and say, what cult are you part of? Oh, we're not a cult, we're, 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 we're Catholics, do you know Jesus, you know? And uh, uh, they, 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 have, they have one of the biggest youth conventions now in Austria. At Pentecost, every year, they have 2,000 youth that they gather, all Austrians. But it was, why was that possible? Why is this growing movement now that's touching families? And then there was a radio broadcast about a year ago that said this is one of the most significant youth movements in Austria. Why did that come about? Oh, because Cardinal Schönborn said, you need to go to these people. They got input from evangelicals. Why did Cardinal Schönborn suggest to Bruce Kluwett? Because Bruce Kluwett had started his own journey, similar to David Bjork, where he came to Austria, and the first thing that happened to him is they were in a prayer meeting. He was there two days. Uh, they were in a prayer meeting, and he saw a rock. And out of this rock came a river of water. And he said, oh, what's, what's that? You know, what's, God's going to do something great. Well, the next day, uh, he was doing his explorations. He had been in Germany for five years. Now he was coming to Austria. But he didn't know what his ministry was going to do. He'd never done anything with Catholics. Um, and he, the next day, he was meeting a, a Catholic abbot in his uh, monastery. And he said he couldn't take his eyes off the, pit, the button that the, the abbot had. Ich, ich liebe Jesus. You know, and I love Jesus. He said, what? What, what is this abbot doing with an I love Jesus button, you know? And this 800-year-old monastery, you know, Bruce is from California, you know. There's nothing 800 years old there, you know. And, uh, and, and so it was just this total clash. And then the, the abbot took a real risk and invited uh, Bruce to one of his youth groups. He said, why don't you come to one of our youth groups? So he went to a youth group, and it was headed, uh, headed by a nun who was at the back. And so Bruce thought, okay... I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to compromise. Good evangelical. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to give them, you know, both barrels, you know. And so you can, you can be going to communion, you know, every week and not be, be saved and know the Lord. You can go to confession. You can believe in the Holy Father all you want, you know. Uh, you can, and he went through all the lists. And he thought, okay, I really made it clear, you know. It's only by the blood of Jesus. Okay. At the end of the meeting... The nun came up to him and said, um, oh, Bruce, she said, you know, we do have Protestants here at different times. And sometimes, you know, they preach very controversial doctrines. And I want to thank you that you've stayed away from them all. <laughs> See, it wasn't a problem. She believed, oh, yeah, sure, you can believe all that and still be a Catholic. So this kind of went, what? Does that begin a journey for, for Bruce for a year and a half where he wrestled with this? And then finally he thought, in, in Austria, the best way to get my message across is to work cooperatively with Catholics. And, and that's what he did. And it's because he did that, Cardinal Schönborn trusted him. So when this man came into his office, uh, Georg, this young uh, dynamo, Georg Meyer Melnhoff, and said, what should I do? He trusted uh, the ministry of Bruce Kluwer enough, he said, why don't you go here? You see, how are we going to do effective ministry in these countries? I've, I know the uh, one man I know from Campus Crusade who's working with, with, uh, within Catholic circles. He goes and he works with the, some of the movements, you know, I think Shaman Muf or something like that. And he was in a meeting where there were 600 and he said this, this uh, lawyer stood up and kind of, you know, you could tell he wasn't really used to this 
because he swore a little bit. He wasn't used to these Christian meetings. You know, this is a Catholic charismatic meeting. And he was, well, you know, it's been really good to be here, you know, this Catholic lawyer, and, I mean, this, this Parisian lawyer. And um, Ian said to, said to me, he said, you know, we just wouldn't get these sort of people in our evangelical meetings. They wouldn't come. They don't come. And that's why David Bjork is doing what he did, because he met, he invited these people uh, to, uh, he would meet these, these Frenchmen. And the Frenchman would say, you know, uh, David, uh, we really like you, but we're not going to come to one of your little evangelical meetings. Well, why not? He said, for three reasons. I'm French, I'm Catholic, I'm an atheist. (laughs) Ganz typisch. (laughs) The French. You've got to love them. (laughs) But you see, it's part of his mindset. You know, I, I, I may be an atheist, but I'm Catholic back there somewhere. So... To get over that barrier, eventually, once David decided he could do it faithfully, he said, I'm, gonna, I will, I'm not going to try to jump that barrier. I'll, I'll get around that barrier. And that's why he does the ministry he does. Um, in this meeting, in, in uh, uh, what time did I start? What time did I start? I have 45 minutes, so I'm going to keep to it. <laughs> well, it is in the Greek because it's it's good news, isn't it? <laughs> I'll be done by forty-five minutes. <laughs> so the. Um, <laughs> oh, I feel better. <laughs> the uh, when I was in the in the Czech Republic, uh, the there's a in these circles of Catholic charismatic. Renewal, there is a man who's greatly respected called Father Raniero Cantalamesa. Some of you will, will know him, of him. And he's the preacher to the papal household uh, for the t- past 25 years. When Pope uh, John Paul II was on his deathbed, he actually said, uh, could I please have those notes? <sighs> Sorry. Uh, can I have the notes from Father Cantalamesa? I want to meditate on, on his messages. Uh, here's the Pope, who every year has a retreat. He said, no, I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to preach at the retreat. No, I need to be preached too. He never missed any of the, for one week, they, the, every year they have this, the retreat. And the head of that retreat and the preacher is Father Raniero Cantalamesa, and he did it for 25 years, and he continues in that role. At that the papal household, are all the heads of the orders, Jesuits, etc. There's about 75. Who else is there, Father Peter? It's, the, it's mainly the head of the orders, and, as I understand. Uh-huh. So it's no small deal. Now, this uh, Father Raniero Cantalamesa, who was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the United States, uh, when he was there, it was in Kansas City. I heard his story the other day he was telling it. But um, I was listening to his message to these young charismatic Catholics, and I was... I was blessed out of my socks, except that I refused to be. I was holding on to them. You know, nobody's going to bless me out of my socks. You know, and um, the, the 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 message, the thing that he said so clearly uh, was one point, and then a, a second point. The, the 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 clearest point that he was wanted to get over to these young charismatic Catholics. He said, "You know, what has been our weakness as Catholics? 
where have we been failing? And he said, what, what we've done is we've confused the kerygma with the didache. The kerygma is the core gospel. The didache is all the teaching. And if, you, and if you know anything about Catholicism, when Catholics say the gospel, they basically mean, you know, well, it's all pretty good news, so the gospel is everything. We as evangelicals were very, very focused on our weakness and our strength. Uh, the gospel is Jesus died for our sins, rose again for our justification. If you embrace that in repentance and faith, you will be saved. That's the gospel. All the else is kind of implications and drawing out of it. Um, and um, Fa- uh, Father Ronnie O'Connell Mesa was saying, the problem is we've confused them. And he says, how do people get born again? They don't get born again uh, by listening to the Didache, the general teaching. It's only by the preaching of the gospel, the kerygma. And then he had the crowd, he went through Romans 10, 9. He said the, it's very, it's, the, the kerygma is three simple things. Jesus died, he rose for our justification, and thus he is Lord. That's the kerygma. That's the central message that we've got to get back to. And the other things are important. Uh, but he was hammering away at this, you see. Now, this is why I, as a, this is not what I heard, or I remember hearing, let me put it that way, as a young Catholic myself. It's sort of, it's just a whole, lots of good things were being said. But this was so clear. And then he talked about it, and he said, where did the problem begin? The problem began with Constantine. Now, I mean, this is like evangelical historiography. In, through Catholic mouth, you know. Because we always say the typical cliched, sort of uh, uh, cut and dried way that we look at it is there was a pure gospel for 300 years. Uh, Const- as evangelicals I'm talking, Constantine came in, you got this Christendom structure where the, you know, the, the church and the state got all mixed up and from then it went corrupt. There was this big space of darkness and blackness and emptiness and ignorance uh, until Martin Luther. And then the gospel came back. You know, and that's kind of roughly the, the way we sort of look at it. Uh, but here is, um, uh, here is a man who's not adopting that take on it, but is still talking about Constantine and saying, yes, this was a major problem and we need to get away from this. So then, you know, Ron Yerokantel Mesa trots off the stage. Uh, he doesn't really trot, but, he, you know, he goes off the stage. And then you have another man who's the other, uh, you know, uh, Catholic preacher for this, Peter Herbeck. Uh, from Mission Renewal Services, I think it's called, under Father or under Ralph Martin, rather, in the United States. It's come out of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal um, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he's, I mean, you know, he's an American, so he's a bit more you know, hard-edged about all this. And uh, so he's saying, he said, you know, the devil is only too happy if we preach lots of you know, social justice and we should be merciful He says, but if we replace the message of conversion and evangelism with those things, the devil is one. Then he talks about his own Catholic uh, story. I mean, he's a devout Catholic. But you have to understand, of course, that the Catholic Church is a very mixed group. There's all these different streams and there's, you know, disagreeing with one another. And so he talked about his own professor of theology uh, who would mock him because he would walk around with a New Testament in his pocket. And this professor of theology in a Catholic university would mock him because he says, oh, you don't believe that. Jesus, Jesus rose in people's hearts. He didn't really rise from the dead physically. You see, all this rubbish, you know. That, and, uh, and this is very common. As a matter of fact, when I asked, I told you about Georg Meyer Melnhoff in Austria. 
When I said, Georg, what about your young leaders? Where do you send them to training? Do you send them to Catholic universities, to the theological departments there, you know, for good Catholic... No, 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 we have to be very careful. Georg's a devout Catholic. He said, oh, no, 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 we have to to be very careful because most of them don't really believe in the physical, actual resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ. This is within the Catholic Church. So Catholicism is very mixed. It's not one thing, Catholic is this, isn't it? You know, you'll find many different kind of expressions. And so here's Peter Herbeck saying, you know, talking about his own experience. And he says, that's not the way to go. He says, that type of Catholicism is not what we need. He says, we need to get, and again, he's talking about the kerygma. And then he tells a story to illustrate. And then they have, as you know, since John Paul II, they've called for the re-evangelization of Europe. We need to re-evangelize Europe. And um, so that's begun to sprung up, especially through what they call the ecclesial movements, the non-parish structures, all these movements that have come up within Catholicism, uh, Catholic uh, charismatic renewal being one of them. And um, so they've started these evangelism training centers. So uh, Peter Herbeck was telling about one when they've been doing this for years. And they had this little old lady who came to one. And she was responsible uh, in a dying Catholic parish in Detroit or somewhere. I can't remember where it was. And she was very discouraged. And she said, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years. And she said, gradually, we're just having a few people at daily mass. where We, can't, we had to sell the parish school. We had to um, you know, do some reconstruction of the church. We couldn't do it. We only raised $10,000. And then as she went through this two-week course at evangelism, at the end she said, you know what? I realized what I've been doing wrong. I've been doing it all wrong. Because I've assumed that everybody, she was, she was responsible for all the catechetical uh, the, uh, material, all the catechisms, the teaching that they would take people through. She said, I realized my mistake. I've assumed that everybody who's come in because they're a Catholic are Christian. I can't assume that. They have to be evangelized. I've got to tell them about Jesus. They have to be born again and converted. So anyway, this went on, and uh, Peter was telling this story. And then ten year, no, five years later, she came back. And she said, well, let me tell you, Peter, what's happened. She said, I went back and I had, uh, uh, you know, we had this young priest. And, uh, of course, it's the little old ladies in, in the parish that run everything. The priest, oh, you know, what should we do? She said, this is what we're going to do, Father. We're going to change, you know, all our catechism material now. I know we're going to use it, but what we're going to do is everybody, we have to take the responsibility for everybody who comes through, we have to initially tell them about Jesus and make sure that they're converted to lead them to Jesus Christ. So they did that. Five years went by. She came back and reported to Peter. She said, you know what's happened? She said, "Um, we've seen in the last five years 700 people uh, receive Jesus Christ as their Lord. And she says, now daily, daily mass has gone from where there used to be just 10. Now we have 250 people coming every day. Uh, to daily mass, and we just raised $100,000 to uh, start rebuilding our church. Now, this is the Catholic Church, you say. This is what happens if people are willing to bring that kind of message that we have. That's the evangelical message. We have no problem with that. I'm happy for people uh, to meet Jesus. Then he was telling another story, and this is where Turkey comes in, you know. Uh, and I was, when I heard, I said, Turkey, you have any connection to Turkey? Uh, I thought instantly, you know, Jason and the International Turkey Network. And um, he said, well, two years ago, I think it was, we took a pilgrimage. You know, we, we go on mission trips, Catholics go on pilgrimages. 
Okay, so they went to pilgrimage to Ephesus. And um, so when they were there, there was a very discouraged Armenian priest, Armenian Orthodox. Is it called the Armenian Orthodox Church? It's the Armenian. Is it, I think it's Orthodox, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. It's D-R-T-A-D. Drit. Dirtad. Ah, excellent. So, oh, good. Well, you can maybe fill in because I've got a very rough story. Tell me if this is right. Um, and they said um, he was very, very uh, bitter at the time because he had just been exiled uh, by the Armenian, um, what do you call them? Patriarch. And so he, they, were, they were on this prayer trip, and again, it's one of these troublesome little ladies. Oh, Father Dirtard, you know, as, as he tells his story, he says, you know, you really have to forgive. Mm, you know. And they were saying he was very, uh, um, uh, well, they said very intellectual. You know, he wasn't very responsive to the spirit. He was very kind of closed up. And so they were talking to him, and they said, uh, well, you really need to, uh, you know, forgive. And so they said, can we pray for you? No, I don't need prayer. Can we pray for you? No, I don't need prayer. Uh, can we pray for you? Okay, okay, you know, enough already, as we would say, you know. So he let them pray. And then uh, the way that uh, Peter was telling the story is the spirit just came upon him. He broke down weeping. And he said, I must go back uh, to the Armenian patriarch. He went back. And he said, uh, uh, I don't know what you call him. Do you call him father, the patriarch? Potter. <laughs> you know. And uh, so they went and he said, I, I have to ask your forgiveness. The, and the patriarch said, I have to ask your forgiveness. And they were, they were reconciled. And then uh, the, the patriarch said, well, you, you should stay here. You can come back. Because, you know, he was very upset because he'd been sent out to the provinces instead of being in the center of things. And uh, so the patriarch said, you know, all that's forgiven, come back, join us. And instead, um, Father Dirtad uh, said, no, I feel that my call is to be back with the people where you sent me in exile. And apparently, and maybe you can just fill in the details here, uh, a wonderful work of God began to, to happen in that uh, Armenian community where he went back. Uh-huh. So is that what the way that I heard it is there's all sorts of fresh new life breaking out amongst the, the Armenian church back there. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So again, these these surprising things when these uh, when we when 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 we allow some of the riches that we have to go into these uh, areas that we think, well, it can't be done there. All right. The, shall, how much more time should I take? No, be frank. Don't, don't be, you know. I don't, want to go to, I don't want to go too long. <laughs> now there's two ways of taking that <laughs> I always interpret things to my benefit let me, let me tell you <laughs> you can take it, keep preaching me away from it or I keep preaching we're going to end up there brother <laughs> 
I love this reasoning. I've never heard that sort of reasoning back to the graveyard. So I'm going to use that with my own family. Well, we're going to end up, let's say, you know, I'm going to probably die in 30 years. So working back from there. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop. I'll say take two minutes then. Um, I'll just take two minutes. I'll just read this little, I love this. Uh, I was just, uh, Father Peter reminded me of this book a couple of years ago, and I was, talking about, and I was just reading it uh, again. A wonderful book, A Man Called Mr. Pentecost by uh, David Duplessis. And it's an old book. Those of you from this uh, will, will remember. Remember Logos Publishing? You know? Yeah. Whoa, whoa, you know? The old days. And um, it's the story of a Pentecost preacher from South Africa who, uh, with Smith Wigglesworth, prophesied over him in 1936 and said, God is going to do the greatest revival is yet to come uh, of the Spirit, but it's not going to be uh, in, it's going to be in the historic churches. And this, you know, David Bless is going, what, in the, what are you talking about? Great. But, and, and then he said, and you're going to be part of it. Whoa, you know, and this was not very pleasing to David Duplessis, but he waited, and it's the story of his expanding life. Amazing story. Uh, but it's, uh, he's eventually disfellowshipped by the Assemblies of God because they said, what are you doing? You can't work with... First of all, it was the World Council of Churches. I mean, he was with them in 1952. This is the enemy, you know. And David Duplessis is very frank. He said there, it was awash with liberalism. But he said, but I had a message. I knew what my message was, and I had a message, and there was an open door for it. So I don't care if it's a, uh, if it's a, a liberal Presbyterian who, who says, what does it mean, David, to be baptized in the Spirit? Tell me about it. Are you going to say, well, you're, you're a member of the WCC, the enemy, the beast? I'm not going to tell it to you. You see, here's doors that were being opened. But that was enough of a step for him. But imagine his surprise when, in one of the meetings, there was a Catholic and said, Rome has to hear this message. I don't think the Holy Father has even heard about this. You have to come to Rome and tell it to us. And then he goes and he meets Cardinal Bayo, who's the, the head of the Pontifical Society. He walks into this office of this guy, um, and um, there's a, um, all these Pentecostal books. This is 1961, you know. I mean, I wasn't even a Christian. This is way before any of this. Is, this is way before the, uh, the, the charismatic movement had broken out generally in, in uh, the Episcopal Church, etc., and outside of the Pentecostals. This is way before. And he's there, and here's this, this man. And, and so David Duplessis says, why in, in this Vatican office do you have all these Pentecostal books? He says, because the Holy Father has told us that we need the Spirit to have renewal in the church. You know, this was the theme of, of Vatican II. To have renewal in the church. And so, who knows about this? So, the Pentecostals. So, I want you to, you need to study everything you can about the Pentecostals. Then, then they said, who can we talk to? And they went to the World Council of Churches. And they said, there's only one man who would be willing to talk to you. To tell them the Pentecostal message. You know, here some people are asking, what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? How can we have life in the Spirit? And there's only one man they can find who's willing to talk to them. And that's David Duplessis, you see. So, he goes in the heart of Rome, he's able to share and then, you know, things uh, go from there. And it's part of one of the preparations for Vatican II. So these, if we, are, if we are willing to be flexible in our thinking and to say, Oh God, are we resisting something? Are you doing something new in these days? And what impact should it be having upon our mission strategies? I think we can see that God can do surprising things in surprising ways in surprising places.